Week 8 is in the books for the NFL season, and we are here to make sure you get up to speed on everything that did take place in the previous week. Obviously, big focus was on the Sunday night game between the previously undefeated Packers and the still undefeated Broncos. And to start with our Week 8 recap, I am going to bring in my co-host here, Mark Schofield, as always, alongside me. And Mark... I know that uh, we still haven't had any action on the Adele Taylor Swift front. Is that correct? That's right. I mean, before I came into studio, I checked again. No action there on our little bet here. But, um, you know, I'm telling you, Adele's going to come through for me. You're going to be sending some Adele here pretty soon. Yeah, for those of you unaware, Mark and I have uh, placed a little wager here. And what that wager is, is if Taylor Swift favorites any of my tweets at any point ever, Mark has to sing Shake It Off in order to open up our next podcast. If Adele favorites any of Mark's tweets, I have to sing... What, what song do I have to sing, Mark? I mean, anything. She's got such a great repertoire of songs. I love her songbook. I mean, you can pick your favorite. I know, you know, you probably like her newest or maybe someone like you, but, you know, anything, anything. I'm probably going to go the someone like you route. I think that really fits with uh, where we're trying to go with the show. And uh, so definitely to any of our listeners, if you can uh, help me out, do do tweet Taylor Swift as much as possible to see if we can get a little action on this, because Mark has a beautiful voice that we do not want to hide from the rest of the world. we want to hide that, believe me. We We don't. Help me out, people. The internet needs this. We need this. So let's uh, let's get focused on football now. Enough uh, enough music. Even though Adele does have that CD coming out in a couple weeks, and go. let's first look at this Denver Green Bay game. I watched uh, pretty much cover to cover on it. Went through everything on there, and obviously, I mean this this was a dominating performance by the Denver defense. And let let's start there with how they were able to take down a, an offense that is led by one of your favorites, and Aaron Rodgers. That's right. And, you know, it gets back to something we actually talked about on our very first podcast, and that's the ability of a defense to generate pressure just rushing four or five guys. And they were able to do that. They were able to drop six, drop seven into coverage, take away throwing lanes, and let Aaron Rodgers kind of either try to buy time to find receivers downfield, or they would still get pressure with four, make them – you know, force him into a quick throw or a quick read and his accuracy kind of dipped at times where he had receivers open. Um, So I think from where I was sitting, it was a great performance by that defensive front that really kind of got Rodgers off schedule. Did you notice anything in Green Bay's play calling? And maybe this was just me, but it seemed to me they were using a lot of either double routes or routes that were simply taking a long time to develop. And it almost seemed like Rodgers couldn't get into a rhythm simply because they weren't trying to get the ball out of his hands quickly to negate that pass rush. Yeah, I think you're right on that. And, you know, they had a nice thing going early on their second drive. They had a, you know, quick little spot concept where he had Randall Cobb in the backfield with him and he ran a swing route. The other routes broke towards the middle of the field, so it freed up some space outside. The next play, they actually went play action, rolled him out of the pocket a bit, and he found Rodgers, the tight end, over the middle on another curl route, and then a quick curl on the outside for a six yard gain. So those. Three plays on their second to open their second drive, I thought. That was a nice little way to construct a drive and kind of get the ball out quickly. But then they come with some more vertical stuff, um, double moves, like you said, some more vertical plays. I think when they got away from what they do best in that quick passing game is that's kind of what they got into trouble, and it sort of played into what Denver does defensively. What about Rodgers' mobility? He had a couple scrambles in this game that he picked up about 31 yards rushing, actually, but... 
did you see him moving in the pocket as well as he typically does? Is that something that was there, or was he a little bit more stagnant, a little bit more hurried? No, I mean, he, he was hurried a bit um, when he was trying to work in the pocket. And a lot of those runs, there was one play where Denver dropped seven into coverage, and Rodgers, it was kind of reminiscent of what he did last year against the Patriots. He had all day to throw, but nobody to throw to. He buys yep. time, he buys time, and finally he just has to tuck it and go. Uh, I think that was kind of by design. It was a way for Denver to take away his throwing options, and then if he's going to pick up 10 yards, fine, we'll give him that, but we'll take away the ability to make a big play downfield. And looking at that, you said he had all the time in the world to throw, couldn't find anyone to throw to, though. Talk to me a little bit about this Denver secondary. There's a lot of focus on what has been going on up front, obviously very strong, uh, led by guys like DeMarcus Ware, who was back last week, Brandon Marshall, the, you know those types of guys. But the secondary with Aqib Tlaib, TJ Ward, and, and a number of other players seems to be playing at a different level as well. Right, and I, I think with with Harris and Talib, you've got two premier cornerbacks that can that you can be confident in putting that guy on the outside, leave him in man coverage, and knowing that he's pro- he's not going to give up a lot of big plays, and that frees up other guys like you said, T.J. Ward, to kind of roam a little bit or lock down receivers in man coverage, and they also know that most times, unless they decide like they do here, where they drop guys into coverage they're going to get pressure up front, which is going to force the defense at the quick throws. They're not going to have to cover guys four, five, six seconds into a play. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, other side of the ball, Peyton Manning. Are rumors of his demise greatly exaggerated? Ah. Uh. It's interesting. It's, <laughs> I want to kind of look at their run game first. We've had Brandon Thorne at Veteran Scout on Twitter. We had him on our podcast weeks ago, and he talked about the Denver running game. Okay. And kind of what I liked out of what Denver did is it seems like that zone blocking scheme, which might be new to a couple of players, that's a scheme where you need all the guys on the same page. They did some damage running the football. Yeah. Um, there was the touchdown run in particular that I'm thinking of. Evan Mathis did a great job on a quick combination block down on the nose guard who shifted late, then got to the second level to open up a hole. So I like what they did running the football. As far as Peyton Manning, I going through my notes i get the phrase intermediate dig route written over and over and over Saw again it a they ton. Were, yeah they were they were running guys off and then bringing guys over the middle on these intermediate dig routes and that looked to be where he made did a lot of damage in the passing game but there was one play in particular that kind of stood out it was a boot action where he was rolling to the right and he had somebody along the sideline on a deep comeback route and i don't know if he missed him or I don't know if he just didn't want to throw that route. I couldn't tell, but he took the option of a shorter crossing route that was better, more well covered. Still made the completion, but it was just one of those things that I saw and made note of it. It's, it we got to watch for this. I mean, he made a nice throw vertically, um, I think either in the first or second quarter, yep. on, a, on a go route that you know was, again, looked like vintage Peyton Manning. But there's something that's still, I don't know if it's a comfort level, if you just missed that one route or what, but it just kind of stood out to me. What did you see? Well, I noted there was one play, I think it was in the first half, where it was on probably just an intermediate comeback route. It was up the uh, right slot, and Manning, uh, Green Bay was sitting there in zone, and Manning pretty much, he, he must have thrown the ball probably three or four steps before the receiver even broke because it pretty much floated into this gap that somehow ended up being between all of the Green Bay players. But it, it just has this look like the ball, It's it, there's, there's no zip on the ball. I think we can both agree on that, correct? Right. And, yeah, I know the player you're talking about. And that's one of the things that he does so well, and it's why you know he could go out there with his arm at 50%. 
well, and, and still win because of anticipation. And, and I even said on Twitter at the time, I'm like, look, he might not have anything left in the tank, but he's got stones and he knows how to place that ball exactly yeah. where he needs to. So yeah, th- exactly. there, there are very few quarterbacks who could be successful, I think, with the physical capabilities that he has today. But he's got the smarts and he's got the timing to, to be able to adjust from when you used to be able to throw the ball and, and fire it in there to this point now where you, you're just kind of, I won't say lobbing the ball, but you've got some, some significant arc on these throws to be able to mentally adjust your timing it's very impressive to me so I was very impressed by what I saw there uh what did you see in terms of other games this week was there anything else that stood out I mean this was the premier game but was there anything else you were really focusing on um I want to go back to that Thursday night game I think for a minute okay look at what New England was able to do I mean coming off a tough divisional game against the Jets. You've got a short week, another divisional game now against Miami. Granted, you're at home, but, you know, Miami's coming off the two wins, and like we talked about last week, we were wondering if, okay, did they get a chance to pad the resume against the two AFC South teams, or does Dan Campbell, the interim head coach, have them all pulling in the right direction? And what New England was able to do, especially on that opening drive, I mean, they just the first two plays were the same exact play, just run to different sides, a little you know, power pull play with the guard pull and opens up the play action game later in the drive, the show play action, all three Miami linebackers crashed the line of scrimmage. And Oh, by the way, there's Rob Gronkowski, number 87, cutting five yards behind them with nobody within 10 feet of them. Easy catch and run for a score. I just really liked what they were able to do, not just on that opening drive too, how they closed out that first half. They had a nine point lead. They get a turnover on an interception, turning into points, force a three out, another quick drive, touchdown. They turn that nine-point lead into a 19-point lead at the half. And I don't know if you saw this stat, but New England's something like 71 or 72-0 and 0 yeah. <laughs> at home with yep. a halftime lead. And that's how you win games is make big plays like that to close out a half or close out a game. The other thing that was apparent to me was the Patriots were without Deion Lewis for a week against the Jets. And having him back in the lineup, it just makes it that much more difficult to cover all of the options that New England has at this point. Because in the passing game, and, and much was made of the spin move that he put on, I believe, was it Koamisi in the... Uh, yes, that's right. Yep. And, and just, you know, the, the footwork that he has, the quickness that he has, gives them a dimension that you can talk about the Patriots slot receivers as being quick, but I think Lewis has just the, the agility and the footwork to get in and out of breaks so quickly. And, and beyond that... He he just once he gets the ball, you're not even. It's not even yards after after contact. It's just he makes guys miss completely. Yeah, and you know, matchup problems. That's a phrase that we can use and we've used in the past to talk about what New England does on offense. And we're seeing now with this group with Lewis, with Gronkowski, with Chandler when they bring him in. It's it's not the same as that trio when they had Danny Woodhead, Gronkowski, and. Aaron Hernandez, but it's similar in that you've got some dynamic tight ends and a quick little shifty back that can cause problems both running the football and outside in the quick pass and its green game. It's it's reminiscent of what they were able to do with those teams. Yeah, it, it really is when you look at it. So we're going to move now to uh, we've talked about some good performances in the last week, but now we come to that segment where we detail our great performance of the week. As always, it is the Harry Stamper All-Go Offensive Play of the Week. Mark, 
I believe this is your calling card. It is my calling card. And as always, it's brought to you fine folks for the ITP podcast by the great people over at NASA. NASA, listen, if you can't get the Harry Stamp or no taxes ever deal, just imagine that all your tax dollars are coming to the good folks at NASA and they'll take care of you. You'll feel better about <laughs> it in the morning. Um, they really the worked hard to get that tagline in there, didn't they? Yeah, I mean, they, that, that's, that's new copy. You haven't heard it before. A little <laughs> rough around the edges. We'll have to work on that a bit with their advertising folks. But this gives us a chance, Chuck, to talk about your first place, Houston Texans. Uh, my first place, well, they're everyone's first place, Houston Texans, because I can tell you, if I'm looking at the standings here, I don't want to be associated with a team that is sitting there at the proud record of 3-5 and five and in first place in the AFC South, but somehow has our play of the week. They do have our play of the week, and it was a big play for them. They matched up against Tennessee at home, and it was a 10-6 game, some point in the third quarter, I believe, when um, they used a little bit of the Mills concept, which if you've read the Inside the Pylon Grocery, you might have seen this. This is a play that's a combination route with a post route deep and an intermediate dig route. It was came to be known as the Mills concept when Steve Spurrier was running this for a wide receiver named Ernie Mills, and he was scoring touchdown after touchdown on this design. But what it does, especially against single high coverage as the Titans run here, it puts pressure on that free safety because he's got the deep route, the post route, and he's got that intermediate dig route in front of him. Typically, you'd see the free safety stay deep on that post route, and the Texans here also use a sh shorter dig route from the other side of the field from DeAndre Hopkins to occupy the linebackers. So you'd expect free safety stays deep, linebackers flow forward on that shorter dig route from Hopkins, and it opens up the middle of the field on, again, that intermediate dig route. But Denoris Searcy, who's playing free safety on this snap, he plays it wrong two or three different ways. First, he rolls up towards Hopkins on his short dig route, and then seeing that that's covered and it's going to be a shorter route, he breaks on the underneath dig route by Keith Mumphrey and literally runs right by Nate Washington. I mean, he's, he could reach out and touch him as he runs by him. Washington breaks on the post. Hoyer drops the throw in perfectly. Touchdown. 10-6 game becomes 17-6, and Houston's able to go on for the win. This type of execution, and you mentioned that uh, obviously there was a significant breakdown on defense, but it certainly still did require good execution by the by the Texans' offense here. What did you see from them? Is this something that is typical to them? Is this is this an outlier here? What, what did you see from them on offense? What what, what I think what it is more so than anything is this Mills concept is post dig route. It's an early installation in any offense. I mean, this is something that I ran in high school. It's something that we installed first day of training camp in college. It's one of those like base core passing plays that every team has. So it's one of those things that you've been running it since day one of camp. You know what to look for. You know what your cues are as a quarterback. You know what your route structure is as a receiver. So there's a familiarity with it that allows you to execute it that much better than perhaps some of your other plays in the playbook and look obviously Brian Hoyer has been a guy and and the Texans QB situation has been a little bit of to say the least a little bit of a mess over the course of the year is is Brian Hoyer still a guy who can at least show up and be a capable NFL starting quarterback or is he best suited for a backup role at this point I mean I, I think he's kind of the guy that you can look to to be your like first guy off the bench capable, very capable backup type spot starter that can get you a couple of wins off the bench, either due to injury or poor, poor performance. I don't know if he's the guy that you kind of want to build a team around. I mean, I don't know, Bill O'Brien down there in Houston, do we hear Christian Hackenberg's music? 
I mean, is that is that a direction they go? Obviously, that's a player, Christian Hackenberg, that it has really fallen off draft boards. I mean, a lot of people now wonder if he's even draftable. But his best tape was his freshman year with Bill O'Brien. Is there a reunion in the future? I don't know. When, when you look at Hackenberg, and just briefly, I know we do have a guest who's going to be coming on uh, in just a minute here. When you look at Hackenberg, and look, you know the quarterback position far better than I do, and maybe I just read too much into the body language type stuff, but it almost seems like he's not interested in the game. Yeah, I mean, it, it's tough to kind of get into the mind and the decision-making and what's going through these guys' heads as they're on the field, as they're on the sidelines, when you see them come off the field after an interception or a turnover or a loss of downs. But, I mean, there's got to be a frustration level I yeah. mean, for Christian Hackenberg. I mean, comes in, highly regarded prospect, looks great his freshman year, then there's the coaching change, and it just hasn't clicked for him in James Franklin's system. And now, you know, he, he's, not a, he's not immune to reading what's out there. I'm sure he's on Twitter, he's reading stuff that's said about him, and he, you've got people saying that he's probably not even draftable, or he's a day three guy. Yeah, yeah. So he, it's got to come. It's got to hurt you a little bit, don't you think? Well, it, it does. I mean, look, it's 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 got to be difficult to be in that situation here, and and clearly the guy has all the physical talent in the world. Oh, it's yeah. just a matter of putting it together on a regular basis there. So we are going to move over to our first guest of the day, and we are joined by Mike Backherms, who we recently started publishing some of his data on the uh, InsideThePylon.com website and wanted to invite Mike on our podcast just to really give our readers and listeners a background of what this data measures. And so without further ado, I do introduce Mike Backherms. And Mike, thanks for coming on with us today. Hey, thanks guys for having me. Absolutely. And Mike, there's a lot of data that's out there that people are trying to measure in terms of, look, how good is an offense really? What's the best way to measure that? Can you give us a little bit of a background on what your data seeks to measure and just some of the basic concepts for how it works? Okay. Uh, pretty much uh, my OSR stats, uh, offense success, uh, success rates, are uh, in a nutshell meant to track how efficient a team is at moving the ball on offense kind of without tracking turnovers or explosive plays yet. Um, it's, uh, I, I guess, kind of similar to uh, football outsiders DPOA, but with uh, slight tweaks on how the efficiency are rated on a down-by-down basis. Um, so, uh, effectively, um, success rate or success on any given play is uh, gaining 50% of the yards you need on uh, first down. Uh, 50% of the yards you need uh, remaining on second down and then actually converting the down on third or fourth down. So just to, um, just, to I, make, I, just to make sure that I'm understanding that correctly, so you're saying first and 10, obviously, goals to pick up five yards. That kind of keeps you moving in the right direction. But let's say you end up only getting two and you're now on second and eight. You're, you're still looking to pick up four yards. That's that 50% of what's left, correct? Correct. So uh, pretty much you want... Uh, second down is kind of a pivotal down in the stats because that's kind of getting you back on track in case you have a negative play. Uh, so, if again, if you do have a negative play, say an incompletion, or yet yeah, you only gain two yards, uh, your goal is to then set up third down to be as makeable a down as possible. So if you gain four, four yards on second and eight, uh, you'd be effectively setting up a standard down uh, on third down, which would be third and four or less. And when you look at some of the trends across the league, where, where do most teams typically fall just in terms of the overall number? When we look at first, second, and third down, what's the range that we see in success rates? Do you have access to that data? 
I do. Um, so in an overall sense, uh, teams are converting on average uh, about 45% of uh, all plays. On uh, first down, they're converting about 42.9%, second down 513 and then on third down uh, 38.4. So that's, that's about uh, where league average is. Mike, I wanted to jump in and ask you something about this. And looking through the the OSR numbers and um, looking at the way you've kind of breaking it down, one of the, th- the ways you break it down is first half OSR and second half OSR for each team. And one thing that jumped out, and maybe you can shine some light on this given your area of expertise and th- th- what your work you do, Jacksonville in the first half has a f- – 47 OSR, but in the second half of games, it drops down to under 40%. Is that something that stood out to you? And if so, what kind of thoughts or explanations do you have for that? Yeah, it's funny you mentioned uh, how I split it up between first half and second half, uh, because the original article I based uh, my stats off of, um, it's kind of based loosely off of um, a uh, SB Nation article from Palmog Nation by uh, Bud Elliott. He, he kind of did a, a game breakdown uh, that inspired me to do this series on Big Cat Country. Uh, I think he did it for the FSU-USF game, but uh, he didn't have the first half, second half numbers, but it uh, became pretty obvious early on in the season. Uh, there's a definite disconnect uh, between the Jaguars' offensive output in the first half to the second half. That's why I started uh, breaking down the sets that way. Um, I think because there's so many young offensive pieces, I'm not sure how, uh, I guess, expansive the offensive game plan can be going into it. I'm not sure uh, how comfortable uh, the coaching staff is putting uh, additional pressure with complex second-half game plans or adjustments, but for some reason, defenses are just adjusting very well, uh, pretty consistently to the uh, Jaguars' offense, and output uh, is dropping uh, the most in the league. Mike, this is data that you are updating every week. Is that correct? Yes, it is. And so, I guess from week to week, how much variation do you see from teams? I mean, obviously, I'm, I'm looking at the raw data here, but is this something that we see a lot of, uh, you know, f- just from one team? And I'm looking at Atlanta, for example, which is one of the better teams overall here at about 51.7%. Do you see a lot of week to week variation here, or are teams pretty consistent? across uh, every week? Uh, well, I guess early on in the season, uh, there was starting to be a little bit more variation, but taking a uh, taking team like Atlanta, I actually have the week-by-week numbers in front of me. Um, the first three weeks of the season, they were floating at or above. Oh, no, the first two weeks of the season, they were floating around 50%, and then week three, I think that's about where uh, Devontae Freeman started going crazy. Yep. Uh, it jumps up. It jumps up to about sixty percent, uh, and stays about above fifty percent the rest of the week. And actually, they hit their uh, season high last week at sixty-five uh, percent uh, uh, overall effective rating. Now, again, my OSR stats don't quite uh, adjust for turnovers, and that was obviously a big issue on Sunday. But um, what they were able to do against the Bucks' offense when they weren't turning the ball over was very impressive. Very good. Well, Mike, appreciate having you on today, and definitely we'll keep everyone updated with these stats as we go. We'll definitely get you back on later on this year, and thanks again for your time. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. 
No problem. That's Mike Backrams. You can follow him on Twitter at Mike underscore Backrams. We also do have all of Mike's OSR and DSR data up on InsideThePylon.com, so you can check that out there as well. Turning now to one of the segments that we do every week here, focusing on the Inside the Pylon glossary. This is a fully uh, annotated, fully uh, media-centric glossary that we are developing in association with Dan Hatman from the scoutingacademy.com. And Mark, talking today about a concept that you hear sometimes on broadcast, and I think a lot of people aren't really familiar with what it is, and that is the concept of the mesh point. Right. And, you know, it's something that we're seeing a lot more now than we were, say, five, ten years ago, especially with the run pass option, the read option schemes that teams are using. It's something that you'll see Saturday afternoons. You'll see a ton of it. You'll see it Friday nights. And you're seeing it now, too, in the NFL. And if you've ever seen a play like this, you know that each of these plays starts with running back and the quarterback together in the backfield in the shotgun quarterback takes a snap and he and the running back initially come together where the quarterback will put the ball in the running back's belly and decide at this point whether he's going to hand the ball off or keep it and go through the rest of the structure of the play. And that little meeting between running back and quarterback, that's what's called the mesh point. They come together, and that's when the quarterback makes the decision. Is he going to give the ball off to the running back, or is he going to go through and either throw the ball downfield, run the sweep on his, on his own, run the option with a wide receiver, all the other multitude things that offense can do after that. But that initial meeting, that's what we call the mesh point how do you develop that type of timing so that you're not fumbling the ball every time you do this because look as a kicker I never deal with the situation like this so I look at it and I see the quarterback pretty much giving the ball the running's back almost has his ball has his has his hands around the ball and and somehow they come out of there without fumbling more often than not how, how does that happen what, what do you do to train for that Right. I mean, that's just repetition, repetition, repetition in practice because the running backs expect him to get the ball in the handoff. I mean, he's got to be ready to take the ball and go and make his cuts, whatever reads he has to make in the zone read scheme that he's that that offense is running. So he's fully anticipating that quarterback's going to give him the ball. So he can't just kind of, you know, lazily go through this portion of the play and then, oh, wait, the ball's in my stomach and I'm not ready for it. So it's all about the quarterback and it, it comes down to a matter of ball placement quarterback has to put the ball in the belly running back's got his hands ready to accept the handoff and he has to be able to get the timing down to put it in make the decision and pull the ball out you know we talked a lot about quarterbacks and their decision making process at the collegiate level and if they can get ready to make the leap to the pro level that's a quick decision that that quarterback has to make now i know there are some teams that will show the play cards and almost give you pre-snap what the quarterback's going to going to do at that mesh point but he still has to execute put the ball in make the decision get it back out and continue with the play is there a difference let's say that a running back moves from one team to the next that are both running similar plays how much of an adjustment period is there to get that timing down with the new quarterback I mean, it's pretty quick. It's not like you're trying to get on the same page when you're running a 15-yard comeback route deep down the field. You're, yep. you know, you're meeting at the same point. You work on it in practice a little bit, and you get to sort of the same level of familiarity that you had with the previous quarterback or the previous team. But it definitely takes some work, and it's important because when you think about this from the defensive perspective, and our friend Dan Hatman actually was talking about this on Twitter the other day. A defense's goal when facing teams that run read option, you know, the zone read type stuff is to disrupt the play at the mesh point. 
Yep. If you can get interior pressure or penetration either inside or off the edges to disrupt that meeting between quarterback and running back, you stop these plays cold. So if you know if you can, you know, do that, that's what a defense is trying to do. So it's a critical component both from the offensive standpoint, you want to make sure that the movement and the mesh point is crisp. But defensively, that's what you want to attack first and foremost because it shuts these plays down before they start. And I was doing some film work last night on Dak Prescott, the Mississippi State quarterback. Yep. I actually saw a play where Texas A&M uh, shut one of these plays down in the backfield where they literally sacked Prescott at the mesh point. Well, it works. Let's look now at a uh, a coach who has really been an innovator with the option at the college level, now moving to the pros. And we're talking about Chip Kelly here, now with the Philadelphia Eagles. And they have a matchup coming up against the Dallas Cowboys, a divisional matchup between, again, it's not the worst division in pro football, largely because of the AFC South, but in the NFC East, this is a pretty big game for Philadelphia to try to stay in the hunt here, really for Dallas to try to stay relevant at this point. What are expectations uh, coming into this game for both teams? Uh, somebody's going to win this game, right? Uh, that's what I'm told. We have yet to have a tie this year. Uh, I mean, ties could happen. You, you could have a tie. I don't know. I mean, I watched a couple games from Philly, and this seems to be an offense that is out of rhythm, which is unusual for a Chip Kelly offense because – I was up at Dartmouth back when he was still at UNH, and we were playing against those teams back when they were number one, number two ranked teams in FCS at that point. And I'll tell you, even those teams, these you, you know, you're talking about lower level Division One football, and you are getting these teams coming out fast. They're flying around, and and they were well coached. They moved quickly, and their offense was unstoppable at that point. They had some outstanding players, and it's just it's it's a little. A little shocking to me that I'm seeing such a different offense from them this year. Is what is going on? Can can you make sense of that for me? I, I can't really make sense of it. I mean, I've I've watched a ton of what Philly has done this year from an offensive standpoint, and you know I can't figure it out. I mean, sometimes it's a matter of giving up pressure. You know, again, getting back to what we were talking about with the mesh point. One of the ways to slow down these types of offenses is if you can get interior pressure to disrupt the zone blocking schemes on running plays if you can get interior pressure to get the quarterback kind of having to accelerate his mental clock when you go run pass option he's looking to throw the ball now instead of having a few seconds to throw he's got to get it out quicker and i think that's kind of where it starts and it kind of gets us back to what we were talking about at the beginning of the show with denver and what they've been able to do as the season's gone along they're getting on more of a page up front in that zone blocking scheme that they're using and when you get on the same page up front they've moved personnel around they just lost john peters last week to a knee injury they had to bring in a backup who gave up a big sack to jared allen in that game against Carolina. So I think it's a problem with getting everybody on the same page up front, and it all kind of feeds off of that. What about for the Dallas Cowboys on the other side of the ball? This is a team that when Tony Romo and Des Bryant got hurt, it was, look, let's try to weather the storm here. They picked up a couple early wins against the Giants and Eagles. Since then, five straight losses against improved competition. Yeah, I mean, it, things look tough down in Dallas right now. I mean, from an offensive standpoint, you know, they went with Brandon Weeding for a couple of games. That didn't pan out. You know, they made the move for Matt Castle. That hasn't panned out. I mean, what do you do? Do you go now Kellen Moore? Do you bring him in? I mean, they just haven't been able to generate any offense without Tony Romo. Yeah, it, it's been very difficult for them there. And so I think, you know, the, the big thing is – and look, they've gone through a couple quarterbacks here. 
I guess from a personal perspective, I almost expected a little more from their defense. And, and we can talk about whether or not Greg Hardy's a good person, and that'll take about one second because obviously he's not. But I think as a football player, you expected to see a little bit more from that defense where it's a team that is averaging, they're giving up around 25 points a game right now, and that's been a problem for them as well. Right, and you know some of that kind of can stem a little bit off the flaws offensively. I mean, when you get a defense that sometimes has to face a shorter field, or you get turnovers on the offensive side of the football, it puts a defense in a bad position. But yeah, I mean, you did expect more from that defense. Obviously, you know Hardy has come back. Um, you know, it's again, like you said, I'm not going to dwell too much time on whether he should be on the field or not, what kind of person he is, because again, that's. You know, we all know and I think we're all on the same page there, but he's, you know, helped them a little bit in terms of pass rush, but it's not the pass rush that we expected, especially when they drafted a guy like, you know, Randy Gregory, who was a, definitely a first round talent who fell with some problems with marijuana use at the combine. There were concerns there, but you've got what looked to be two bookend upper level defensive ends and just not getting it done on the defensive side of the ball. Yeah, it, it's it's been a major problem for them as well. And it's going to be, again, this is an Eagles offense that hasn't really shown a lot. So you'd like to see them step up here and be a little bit more efficient on defense. Yeah. I mean, well, they're coming off a bye week now. And, you know, as we saw with Denver, they get to, you know, kind of get things moving, get everybody on the same page coming off their bye week. Philly's got their bye week now where they, you know, could put some more things in, kind of work the kinks out a little bit on both sides of the football offensively and defensively. You know, I think Philly's probably best suited to go down to Dallas, win that game, and possibly, you know, keep pace with the Giants and Washington in that NFC East. What about the other premier matchup, uh, at least from my perspective, that is coming up this weekend? And that is... Green Bay at Carolina. You have a Carolina Panthers team that is playing probably some of the best football that we've ever seen from that franchise at this point. And, uh, you know, it's a team that's 7-0, and Green Bay 6-1. and We had talked about, you know, who's going to come out on top in the NFC. This is a big one in terms of its overall implications for playoff seating. It is, and I think we need to take a moment here and kind of talk about what Cam Newton's done this year. Have you been and impressed by him? Very impressed by him. If you think about what how this team looked on paper coming into the season, you had you know Kelvin Benjamin, who looked to be you know an emerging talent at the wide receiver position. You know they drafted Devin Funches, who's a big body type of tight end wide receiver hybrid out of Michigan. They looked to be putting some weapons in place around a team that was kind of built around Cam Newton. They made a little run in the playoffs last year. They you know, they beat Arizona. Obviously, Arizona was hampered with the quarterback position in that game. But then you lose Belgium, Benjamin at the beginning of the season. Funches hasn't quite panned out. He's got basically Greg Olson, Jonathan Stewart, and Ted Ginn as his major offensive weapons. And yet, they're 7-0. Yeah. I mean, yeah. if he's not the MVP right now, at least around the halfway point of the season, he's definitely in the conversation. I mean, you've got to be impressed with what he's done. What have you seen from him? Where has the improvement come from? Uh, just because is it is it just his decision making? Is it the the physical traits? Where are you seeing the biggest jump for him? Right. I mean, he's definitely an elite athlete in terms of play speed, play strength pure athletic ability but I think what we're seeing from him is improvement in 
in terms of his patience and poise in the pocket. You know, in studying him in years past, it's been, you know, he's quick and he's working through reads fast and fast and fast. Here he's kind of slowed things down a bit. You know, he's reading the field better. He's getting the ball out, especially to Olsen, who's made some big plays for Carolina this season. And I think what you're starting to see from Cam Newton is just a deeper understanding of the professional game. And, you know, as they're opening up the playbook a little bit, you know, he gives them a lot of options now from an offensive standpoint. Other side of the ball, how does Aaron Rodgers deal with the athletic linebackers of this Carolina defense? Right, and it's similar to the matchup that they faced this past week with a you know yeah. fast defensive front. And you know, let's not sleep on that Carolina secondary. I mean, Josh Norman looks to be you know an incredible young talent outside of cornerback. They've got yep. Tillman, a veteran player out there as well. Um, I, I think what you're going to have to see from Green Bay in this game is try to establish the run a little bit. Um, then build play auction off, play action off of that. You know, try to get the linebackers moving around a bit. Try to use their aggressive, their speed, aggression and speed against them a bit. Get guys flowing one way, coming back the other. Use some misdirection and try to attack the Carolina defense that way. I mean, this is a defense that you know they look to be in control of that game against Indianapolis on Monday night. But let Indianapolis back in the game. Yeah, and and I think. Look, it's 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 difficult to really for me to try to figure out who's going to come out on top here just because you have two teams that until last week again that that Green Bay team was outstanding. I mean, they looked like they were going to be a wagon in the NFC. So this is one that I'm interested to see partly just cuz I want to see just from a psychological perspective, how does Green Bay bounce back on offense from a game where look, they had what was it 70 70 yards passing for Rodgers? Right. Yep. Yeah, so it's I'm I'm curious exactly how they try to bounce back there. I think it's uh, you know it's going to be a challenge for them, and you want to see a little bit of resilience from that team. You want to see that they're able to take that hit and get back to where they need to be. Because again, this is this is I don't it, make or break is such a dumb term to use, but for right. playoff seating, this is important. It's, That's an important game, I mean, for Green Bay to come back, bounce back with a win. You know, another game that I'm looking at is that Rams-Vikings game. I mean, yep, we've talked about yep. the Rams a bit. Um, we've talked about the Vikings a bit. I mean, these look to be two young teams that, yeah, maybe they're not Super Bowl contenders. Maybe they're not contenders for the NFC title this year. But they both look like they're ready to make the leap. And, you know, that's a nice little matchup. Two young defenses. We've talked about what St. Louis is doing on the defensive side of the ball. But you also have to like this young Minnesota Vikings defense. They've got two young linebackers, Anthony Barr, Eric Kendricks. They've got Everson Griffin, the veteran defensive end. Brian Philpack on Inside the Pylon has a great article breaking down him as a pass rusher. That's another game where, again, not – the elite cream of the crop in the NFC, but you know, two teams with winning records trying to get ready and position themselves for playoff runs. Now, a lot of people have been down on Teddy Bridgewater over the last couple weeks. I personally, I, I look at him. I still like what I see from him. I like the accuracy he displays. I think that, and, and I've mentioned over the course of this season, both here and on Twitter, that I, I still don't think that he has a ton of weapons on offense. Obviously, Peterson and Diggs, but there isn't a lot of depth there. Are you still high on Bridgewater as well? Yeah, very high. And, you know, we talked about this a little bit last week. And the emergence of Diggs as an offensive weapon is big for that team. And, again, I I may even said this last week, Kyle Rudolph, he looks to be, you know, a nice little security blanket for – 
Teddy Bridgewater sort of in that Jason Witten type mode is somebody that you can look to to make a big third down catch um, to kind of run those routes over the middle of the field, occupy some space, free up stuff for Diggs and, you know, Patterson from time to time and Wallace on the outside. So, you know, I like what they're doing offensively. I, I'm still a fan of Bridgewater. I've been a fan of his for a while now. I think he's a nice young talent at the quarterback position. So, yep, that St. Louis-Minnesota game, that's that's another one to definitely keep an eye on. Yep, yep. So, Mark, we've got about five minutes left, and you and I both have a friend. His name is Dr. Christopher Geary. He is, yeah. he is, he is an outstanding surgeon and yes. uh, is one of the – I would say he's one of the leading orthopedic surgeons in the country. Is that fair? Let me tell you uh, quickly – before we, we try to do what we're going to do here, he diagnosed one of my shoulder injuries sight unseen. He's never put his hands on me, never looked at me, just saw one little x-ray film and said, yep, this is exactly what you've got. I mean, he's a genius. He's a brilliant doctor. I, I'd send anybody I could to him. So the problem with Mr. Geary or Dr. Geary being such a good doctor is that his schedule makes it pretty much impossible for us to know if he's going to ever be able to join us on a podcast. So what we're going to do is we're going to have our producer, Tucker, uh, pot up. We're going to have him call um, Dr. Geary and pot him up, and we're going to see if he can actually pick up. If he does, we're going to talk to him. Otherwise, we're going to leave him a nice message for when he gets out of surgery. So are we? Uh, how are we looking, Tucker? Are we, uh, we getting close? We're still uh, still waiting for him. Oh, this should be good. I believe Tucker's dialing right now. We're going to see if we can get this potted up while it's ringing. Oh, it's ready. We, we got a dial tone. Oh, that's exciting. I know. I've I've never we've never done this before. No. Uh oh. This might be a message. Gear, yep. Gary might be in surgery still. I was told to call exactly at this time, and we may be able to get him. I also told him not to keep his phone on vibrate if he had it by the operating table. No, that, you don't want to do that. No, you don't need that. Your call has been forwarded to an automated oh, voice auto message. System. Mark, we're going to leave a message. At the tone, please record your message. When you've finished recording, you may hang up or press 1 for more options. Dr. Geary, this is Chuck Zada from InsideThePylon.com. Apparently, you are too busy saving lives and making people walk again to uh, want to come on our podcast with us. So, in any case, we will try you again at the same time next week, where hopefully we'll be able to have you on. I know that Mark has uh, some words for you as well. Dr. Geary, I hope you're doing well. Hope today's surgery goes well, and we'll talk to you soon, buddy. And that should be all we need there. And uh, Dr. Geary will be getting that shortly. I anticipate having a nice note from him sometime later on today. Mark, we are uh, out of time for the day, though, so we are going to uh, have to unfortunately say goodbye once again. That's a shame, but that, that was exciting. I like that. Little, yeah. little little live radio, man. There's nothing like it. It was good. We're going to try to uh, – we're definitely going to try to make that a uh, regular segment. And uh, actually, you know what? We've got five minutes, actually. I think we can stretch out another five minutes. I just got a text from Dr. Gear. He says that he's free. Let's try to get him potted back up, Tucker. Oh, fantastic. Look at that. We must have got him right as he was cu- He was probably just scrubbing out or whatever yeah, they do at the out. end. He saw the phone ring, couldn't finish washing out in time. There we go. Do you scrub out on the back end? Is that how it works? I, I, I'm, not, I'm not a doctor. I, I don't watch ER or anything like that. I don't yeah. know. I'm a, I'm a lawyer by trade. I'm supposed to be scared of doctors. Yeah, I, I really don't know how. I, in general, I've had surgery once. I had my appendix taken out. It was August of 2012, and that's about as close as I ever want to get to going to an operating room again. Yeah, I had, I had my appendix done, ooh, 1994. How was it back then? Mine, mine, so I had mine out on a Friday. I was back to work on a Monday. 
Yeah, see, I had mine out on a Sunday morning, and I was laid up for a little while. I mean, they they went in there with a spoon or something. I mean, that was the dark ages, man. Yeah, I, I, they might not have even had spoons back at that point. So I don't think they had anesthesia either. No, they really didn't. So we are fortunately joined now by Dr. Christopher Geary, who uh, is coming to us probably. Doctor, where, where are you right now, Chris? I'm walking in my car. <laughs> not, not bad. Everything go well today? Oh yeah, I'm sure he'll do fine. Very good. So <laughs> <laughs> he'll he'll walk. So let's let's oh, talk yeah. let's talk a little bit about some of the uh, the injuries that we saw over the last weekend. A couple big ones. Uh, which which stood out to you as kind of right on the tape? What were you able to see uh, from kind of some of the big injuries this weekend? Uh, it was definitely a bad week to be an MCL in the uh, in the National Football League. Um, kind of, that was kind of an unusual cluster of injuries in terms of like Reggie Bush and. Uh, Le'Veon Bell, been, you know, according to reports, they've got season-ending MCL injuries, which you don't normally – normally MCLs are more of like, a, all right, we're going to let it heal. You know, they don't usually require surgery. or They don't, don't normally end your season. Um, but I think, you know, it's, there are certain patterns of injury with the MCL and, and concomitant injuries that can mitigate against you coming back in the same season. Um, you know, it sounds like with uh, Bell, I think they said it was an MCL plus other damage. They didn't specify what it was, so that may have been his articular cartilage. It may have been his meniscus. Um, might have been enough that they said, "Look, we got to you know address this surgically and, and you're done for the year." With Bush, it sounded like it might have just been his MCL. And there are some MCL injuries where you do want to actually fix it surgically and um, where it won't actually heal on its own, which it normally would do, um, depending on where it's torn and how it's torn. Sometimes you actually have to fix that. So that was those are the the big ones that stood out to me as being significant and a little unusual from what you normally see the usual like ACL Achilles that kind of stuff what about I mean Steve Smith also you mentioned Achilles there Steve Smith going down with an Achilles injury at his age is that something that he'll be able to obviously he's done for the season but coming back potentially for another year what type of uh, results can he expect at that age he's you know he's a, a tough guy obviously there's, you know, there's, there's, it's a it's a it's a pretty reliable surgery. It's a bit of bit of a long rehab. Um, he may lose a little bit of explosion in that leg. Um, he's old enough and, and is a good enough technical wide receiver that I think he's he's a guy that I think might be able to come back from that. Um, even if he loses half a step, um, he's still good at fighting for the ball. That I don't necessarily know that's going to affect him. I mean, he might he's going to it'll be you know he might be a little bit slower. You know, if you find him in the forty, maybe he's a little slower. You might not have quite the same explosion off the ball, but he's such a physical guy in terms of a wide receiver that he is—he's someone that, that he's not just a pure speed burner where you might, oh, that's really gonna, you know, that might impact him to even lose that half step. He's so good at fighting for the ball and being physical that that might actually be something he can come back from. And and, and Chris, you're working on a lot of these types of injuries in your day job every day what types of advances are you seeing in terms of you know it used to be I remember when I was a kid I had a friend who did an ACL back then and this was probably like 92 93 and I remember it was like 18 to 24 months for him to get back to normal then that time has come down significantly today how much further how much faster can we get those recovery times as techniques continue to improve it's certainly been impressive even since I started residency in 2000, just in terms of the, the rehab um, and the, the, some of the technical advances, um, a lot of the advances you're seeing now are more, it really has to do more with the rehab as opposed to the actual like, technical surgery. Um, you know, the techniques are evolving and guys are coming up with, you know, variations on a theme, 
but we're, I think, you know, to a degree within the, the confines of, of orthopedic surgery, we're kind of getting to like the, the limits of what we can do in terms of improving the actual surgery. Um, most of the, the, of the real improvements you're seeing at this point are in rehab. And it used to be, you know, the 18 to 24 month thing was like, all right, you know, we're going to do your surgery. Then we're going to put you in a cast for six weeks. And then you're going to have this like stiff leg that it's going to take you six months to even regain your motion, much less your strength. These days it's, you know, we start moving them right away. The physical therapy starts right away. And one of the bigger advances that come out in the last couple of years has been kind of patient specific physical therapy where it's, it's not just based strictly on time. It's more like, all right, when do you meet these certain milestones in terms of recovery? When can you do a one-legged hop? When do you do like a three-point a three point shuttle in a certain fashion? You know, you see someone like in a different sport, Marcus Stroman this year yep. came back from his ACL in I think like five months. And he's a pitcher, which is obviously different from playing in the NFL. But yep. that just speaks to the fact that, you know, if you actually tailor your rehab, um, as opposed to saying, well, you can't do this until three months, and then you can't do this until six months. Like, someone might be ready for it at five months, or someone might not be ready for it at eight months. Um, so I think that's where we're seeing a lot of the real you know, cutting-edge advances in terms of the rehab. Outstanding. Well, Chris, we'll let you get on with your day now and uh, get back to saving people's lives, and we will continue talking about football here, all right? All right, guys. Thanks a lot. All right, Dr. Christopher Geary. Uh, you can follow him on Twitter at ChrisGearyOrtho, and really one of the best resources there. And I'm glad we were able to get him on. And he's going to have that nice uh, present for uh, on it for him on his uh, voicemail, Mark, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, that's a nice little treat for him. He'll probably be sitting in his car right now. He's like, oh, wait, I got a message. And, th- and then it's us, so he'll be thrilled to, 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 to listen to that. So we are going to head out now. You can, as always, follow us on Twitter at ITPylon. Like us at Facebook or like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash inside the pylon and as always visit us at inside the pylon.com until next week this is the itp podcast signing off